This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Welcome to Being Human. The idea for this podcast actually started in 1996. Obviously, there wasn't podcasting back then, but that was when I graduated from college and I began my first ever ministry as a hospital and trauma chaplain. It's a lesson I learned in 1996 that I'm still trying to learn, and that is the simple idea that we can relax into being human-sized. And when we as humans are able to relax into being human-sized, some really interesting things happen. First of all, we become more deeply connected, connected to ourselves. We know what's going on with us, connected to people, whether it's our precious relationships like our family or our workmates, or even whether it's people we really have trouble with, like enemies or people that we just disagree with. Relaxing into being human-sized increases our capacity to connect to each other. When we relax into being human-sized, we are more able to relax into God's presence. So that's really what the Being Human podcast is all about. Let me just start with one basic premise, and you can agree or disagree with this, but this is the lesson that I'm still trying to learn in my own life. I think the only thing that you have to offer the world is a well self. Now, as you think about that, you might be very alarmed and you might be saying, wait a minute, what about Jesus? Surely offering Jesus is more important than offering a well self. I get the pushback, but let me put it to you this way. It's 2024 when we're offering this podcast. Just think back on the last five or six or even seven years and think of the list of famous Christian leaders who were not well. Let's just put it that way. Whether they were abusive or whether they had a secret habit that was exposed, what commonly happened is somebody came forward to declare about that Christian leader that they're abusive or they're toxic or they have some secret habit that's very damaging. And then that abusive leader and all too often the board that surrounded them would double down on the victim. In the simplest of terms, what we could say is those leaders were sick. They are not well. And somewhere along the way, they decided that they wouldn't, they weren't able to come clean and be honest and repent. Their Private life was massively incongruent from their public reputation. And by not being well, they did more damage in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm only talking about famous leaders, public leaders. There are so many people that are not famous and not public who are trying to offer Jesus while themselves not being well. And so I believe the best chance of this world seeing the one true God is if God's followers are well. I first learned this lesson myself in my first ever job after college. I went to Bible college, I got a theological degree, and then in 1996, I became a hospital chaplain. I did hospice work, which is end of life and helping people die and helping their families. And I also did trauma work and cancer work. I was in what's known as a level one trauma hospital. That's the hospital that has the helicopter and all of the worst cases in the city end up at that hospital. I won't go into a whole lot of detail about being a chaplain, but if you've ever watched your hospital dramas and you see those medical residents doing those marathon shifts, they're always exhausted. What you may not know, because it's not on the TV, 
is that ministry students can do a residency as well, especially here where I'm filming in the United States. And so I was a chaplain resident, not a medical resident, but a chaplain resident. Just like the medical residents, we did these marathon shifts. In fact, my first day on the job was a 28-hour overnight shift. My first day was 28 hours. I'd never seen a dead body before. I'd had no experience with grief. I was 24 years of age. And by the way, I'd been married for one week. The first day as a trauma chaplain was the last day of my honeymoon. Yep, that's right. I know how to show my wife a good time. So anyway, first day in the job, I walked in, I was totally green. And I just assumed that the job was focusing on the people in pain. I mean, after all, if you think about when someone's dying or when there's been a a tragic accident or someone gets terrible news about cancer, who cares what's going on inside the chaplain, right? Isn't it all about attending to the people in the worst moments of their life? What I was surprised to learn in that year I was a chaplain, I'm still trying to learn it in my life, honestly, all these years later. The lesson was if I don't attend to myself, I'm actually no good to anyone else because I infect every room I walk into and also I am infected by everything coming at me, especially as a chaplain, when what's coming at me is death and grief and sorrow and absolute human desperation. Like if you think about it, I was generally with people at the absolute lowest points of their life And my job was to help those people navigate those absolute worst moments of their life. And if I was not aware of myself, or maybe another way to say it, if I was not well, my assumptions that I carried under the surface would get in the way. So, for example, some assumptions that I still carry to this day that I struggle to navigate. I assume that I must always know what to do in any situation. You put me in any situation and my default posture is I'm supposed to know what to do, even if I've never done it before. So like I was a rookie chaplain, I'd had no experience with grief, but I still expected out of myself to know what to do. That's a weird assumption I carry. One of the assumptions I still carry to this day is my job on this earth is to make people feel better. Man, a man, if I'm in a room and you're not well, Or if you and another person are not well with each other, my brain tells me that my job is to anxiously go in and make you guys well so that I can be well. It turned out in those early weeks of chaplaincy, most of what I said and most of what I did that I thought was to help people was actually to quell my own anxiety. And I had to learn the counterintuitive lesson, the lesson I'm still working on today, that I had to learn to attend to myself. In order to help people in the worst moments of their life, I had to be first well. I had to know what was going on in me. I had to manage my assumptions so they wouldn't get in the way. And when I was in a room where there's all kinds of emotion and anxiety flying around, I had to learn how to be present without catching that anxiety from others. Present to myself, Of course, present to the people in the room, but also present to the God that was in that room as well. One of the signs that you're not well is when you've stopped noticing God's presence. And, you know, chaplaincy, I mean, that was a long time ago, and I've had a lot of vocational ministry under my belt since then, but chaplaincy was kind of the equivalent of a military boot camp. You take a young ministry student and you plunge him or her into daily context of death and trauma and cancer. And boy, does that help you come to the end of yourself. 
So when I was a chaplain, one of the things I did is I served on the code team. You know what the code team is. If you've watched the hospital drama, you know, it's that crash cart with the paddles and the doctors and nurses rushing into the room and clear and all of that. Uh, what they don't show on TV is is the chaplain is also on the code team, but you're not usually in the room. Sometimes you're in the room praying, but oftentimes you are actually with the family and you're sitting on the ground right outside the room. Like you're just in the hallway with that family and your job as a chaplain is to not do something. The doctors and nurses, they get something to do when everything's flying. But as the chaplain, your job is to be present and wait. It's one of the hardest things. After a particularly grueling code, one of the doctors came out and he knew I was a chaplain resident in training. And he pulled me aside and he said, hey, chaplain, just a little thing I've learned over the years of being on the code team. He said, anytime, anywhere in the hospital, someone's heart stops beating First, take your own pulse. It, kind of metaphorical, obviously. I mean, <laughs> someone's dying, that doctor's not then saying, let me just make sure I'm well, I, I get it. But just that metaphorical idea that before you walk into the world of chaos and trouble, be well. I also think about it through the lens of a flight attendant, right? Every time you get on a flight anywhere in the world, here's what they say. In the unlikely event that we lose cabin pressure, oxygen masks will drop. First of all, I love how cheerfully they say that. Like, you know, we're going to die. But just in the unlikely event that cabin pressure drops, they say oxygen masks will drop. And listen, if you've flown, you know what they say next. They say, first, put the oxygen mask on your own face before helping others. That's because flight attendants know something that many of us struggle to believe is true. You can't help another human when you're dead. You can't. Your capacity to help other humans when you're sick is really diminished. So this show is all about emotional health. How do we know when we're well? How do we know when we're not well? How can we intentionally have practices to help us be well so we can deepen our capacity to not just love God, but experience the love of God? To not just help people, but actually step into situations of high anxiety, even situations of evil situations where people are in grave trouble and really need help. This well self, it isn't selfish. It's actually the path to be able to deepen our capacity to love God, be loved by God, serve on the mission of God. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. So this is our first episode. So let me just tell you a little bit about myself. My name is Steve Cuss. Yes, my last name is Cuss. Let me get it out of the way. There's nothing any of us can do about it. I'm a fellow human being like you are. I'm a pastor and an author. I was born in Western Australia in a city called Perth, the most isolated city in the world. 
and I grew up and was raised in a secular family. I love my family of origin. I don't get home enough. I live in the United States now. I try to get back to Australia a couple of times a year, but boy, I love catching up with my sister who I'm very close to and my parents and uncles and aunts and cousins. It's, it's a great joy. I have a family of origin just like you do. And all of us bring assets and liabilities from our family of origin into our life. And in fact, that'll be a future episode. We're actually going to dig into how our family of origin impacts our current relationships, even our workplace relationships. But just so you know a bit about me, there are lots of assets I gained from my family of origin. A great sense of adventure, love for travel and exploration. My love for music comes particularly from my dad. A predominant memory, especially of my teen years and preteen years, was lots of music in the house. Got my sense of humor from my mum. She's one of the most quick-witted people I know. My moral compass, my sense of right and wrong, before it was forged by the church and by scripture, it was forged by my family of origin. My work ethic, my posture of service to others. These would be some of the assets. And hey, listen, when you grew up in Western Australia in the 70s and 80s like I did, there were some pretty amazing ways that we were raised that I didn't realize were amazing. I'll just tell one quick story. There's an island off the coast of where I was raised, the island's called Rottnest Island. No need to nerd out, but Rottnest is based on uh, a Dutch word because the Dutch first discovered this island. Rottnest in Dutch is rat's nest. There's a particular marsupial called a quokka that only lives on this tiny island. It's not even on the mainland of Australia. And when the Dutch saw these quokkas, they thought that they were rats, and so they named the island Rottnest. Facts that don't make a difference. Some of you can file that fact about quokkas right behind the in-sync lyrics in your brain, right? Well, my grandfather had a boat and every summer we would go live on his boat for a couple of weeks. In the morning, we'd have to swim a lap around the boat if we wanted breakfast. That was the rules to get breakfast is everyone's in the water swimming a lap around the boat. And then after breakfast, we'd clean up. We would go out deep sea fishing. On the way back from deep sea fishing, we would pull the lobster traps that we had set the morning before we would get the fresh lobster out, we'd put some of the fish for bait that we'd caught into the trap, we'd drop the traps in a new location, we'd go back to the bay and around 10.30 in the morning, we'd sit around eating lobster that was alive 30 minutes ago, the freshest seafood you could possibly imagine. And then after that, maybe I'd go windsurfing or swimming or explore the island with my friend. I mean, just an unbelievable way of being raised. So lots of assets from my family of origin, lots that I'm proud of, but also some liabilities. All of us also inherit liabilities from our family of origin. And just some for me was there was no physical affection in my immediate family. My parents, for whatever reason, maybe it was just 1970s and 80s Australian parenting, but we just weren't a family that hugged or touched each other very much. No words of affirmation or encouragement. My earliest memories were not being encouraged. Our folks weren't the ones to say, I love you. In fact, to this day, I've never heard that phrase from my parents. And it's complicated because I know they love me and I know they're proud of me and they've shown that in many ways. So I don't say that as a victim or to blame them, but I just was raised kind of starved for an experience of love and an experience of affection. And then probably, you know, most powerfully for me, the predominant experience in our home was red hot anger. I've got a pretty sensitive wiring. I was bullied a lot at school and Home was a tough place, particularly when I was younger, but it was even a, a scary place as a teen. And I think that's a lot of the reason I became a follower of Christ. 
I have an older sister named Tony. She became a Christian a few years before I did. When I was old enough, she started inviting me to youth group and telling me about Jesus. And we didn't get along when we were really young, but in those teen years, we were the only Christians in our family, in our extended family. To this day, I just have so much love and respect for her. And as I like to remind people once in a while, I owe her my soul because she introduced me to the love of God. As much as I have amazing assets in my family of origin, it was when I came to church when I was 13 or 14 years of age that I really felt at home. The church that my sister and I came to Christ in and were discipled in was not perfect. It was a small church. It was very legalistic. It was fundamentalist in the best and worst sense of those words. But my goodness, were those people loving and welcoming to us. And the youth group was an incredible place where we forged friendships with these amazing youth ministers who are the reason I'm in ministry today, Mark and Karen Wilson, John and Pam Timms, our preachers, Kim and Trudy Roberts, the next preachers who taught us about grace, Debbie Peterson, just a line of youth ministers and pastors who introduced us to this God who knows our name, a God where we can belong and we can, we can really experience maybe for the first time in our life, unconditional love. So to this day, fast forward, what is that, 35 years ago, my sister and I are still the only followers of Jesus in our extended family. And so I, as a pastor, I sort of come to faith from an outsider point of view. When I preach and when I help pastor people, I'm always sifting it through the lens of my own family who tend to be skeptical about faith matters. They tend to see people of faith as less intelligent or weak, which is a very common Aussie thing, you know, that Christians are either stupid or weak. Just to be clear, I'm very close to my family of origin, but God has, I think, forged in me a need to make sure that the faith that I believe in can stand the test of heavy intellectual skepticism. So I moved to the USA to pursue a theological education because I knew nothing about the Bible and theology, graduated with a bachelor's degree in Bible and preaching. Then I did that year as a chaplain. Over the course of my ministry, I have worked on a ranch for teenagers who needed a second shot. That was in Montana. I was a youth minister in the Appalachian Mountains in Virginia. I served as a crisis intervention pastor at a large church in Las Vegas. And then most of my ministry has been as a lead pastor here in the Denver metro area. I live in Denver, Colorado, and I was a lead pastor up until 2021. I still attend the church where I used to lead. I was the lead pastor for 16 years, and we have a wonderful young pastor who leads us now. I am a volunteer on the preaching team. I preach occasionally, but most of the time I'm just a congregant, which is wonderful for me. Now I spend my time traveling and speaking and consulting. If you care about my formal training, I've got an undergrad in Bible. I have 1,600 hours of clinical pastoral education. I have a Master of Divinity, which I've always found to be the most preposterous of names for a master's degree. I have mastered divinity. It's ridiculous. But a Master of Divinity is a very rigorous grad degree. I did a form of a master's thesis where I focused on systemic poverty and the dignity laws of Leviticus and Exodus. But nowadays, and really for the last couple of years, what I'm most known as is a specialist in this thing called systems theory. And this is really the heart of what this podcast is going to be about. I'm actually not going to talk about systems theory overtly much. We'll reference it once in a while. But in short, what it does is it helps you notice and diffuse anxiety in yourself 
and in your people. And it helps you particularly notice a specific form of anxiety called reactivity. Now, this is really the heart of being human because when we are reactive, we're no longer human-sized. We either get bigger than human, maybe you've ever been in a meeting with somebody and they just start dominating or they have to have the last word, or maybe they're no longer listening to connect to you, they are listening to fix and give advice, that's them getting bigger than the problem, kind of trying to shrink your problem down to the size of a piece of advice. Some people get bigger than human. Sometimes people get smaller than human. And that most often happens when you no longer feel safe to be exactly yourself. It can be as simple as when you decide to not speak up in a meeting anymore because you tried to speak up a few times ago and you got shut down or dismissed. Or it might be that somebody has a personality that triggers uh, some trauma in you and you move into self-protection mode. So typically what happens with humans is we spend a lot of our time bigger than human or smaller than human. And by doing that, we get disconnected. And when we're disconnected, some really interesting things happen. We're no longer aware of what's going on in us. It's very common when we're filled with reactivity that we actually don't even know we're reactive. We're so much in self, self-aggrandizement or self-protection that we kind of lose ourselves. It's weird. We also lose protection with the people that we're trying to have a conversation with, whether these are our precious loved ones, our family and our friends or our workmates, or whether these are the kinds of people that just really get under our skin. You know, those kinds of people, they violate your values, they're irritating to you. Uh, what the Bible, I would say, describes as our enemies. We get disconnected from them. And most powerfully, we don't get disconnected from God. Much worse, we get disconnected from awareness of God. And so when we are no longer human-sized, we don't notice the Lord anymore. I think it's one of the reasons why one of the most common commands in Scripture is remember the Lord, because we forget as humans. And one of the most common reasons we forget the Lord is because we're reactive and we don't even know it. So being human, it's all about relaxing into being human-sized and relaxing into the presence of God so that we can be connected. I'm not just a pastor, I'm also an author. My first book was Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. It came out in 2019. Most of my work up until now is helping leaders, mostly Christian leaders, but I also do work in the marketplace, helping leaders lower reactivity first in themselves and then among their people. So most of my travel is going to organizations and consulting, working with core leaders and sometimes doing a whole workshop for their staff, and I teach them the science of reactivity. If I'm in a Christian environment, I teach them how reactivity puts us in a false reality and how we can actually relax into the truth of the gospel. If I'm in a marketplace environment, I'll just teach the signs of reactivity. And what that does is it helps staff health, individual health, relational health, it lowers staff turnover, and it helps you be more on mission. And my specialty is actually helping organizations, Christian organizations, that do some of the hardest work in the world. I'm talking anti-sex slavery, anti-trafficking work, global grinding poverty, pastors in persecuted contexts, people who work in foster and adoption. You know, these Christians that are tackling some of the most challenging social problems of our day, those are some of my favorite people to help because if those leaders can be well, then I know that the mission can go on further. 
Okay, so that was my first book, Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. I've got another book coming out in May. It's called The Expectation Gap. It's using the same science of reactivity and systems theory to show us how we get stuck in our faith. We all have gaps in our faith. For example, I believe God loves me, but I struggle to feel it. I believe God's with me, but I struggle to see it. I thought I'd be further along in my faith by now. These are just be some examples of some gaps. And so the book coming out in May, we'll talk about it more as we get closer to release, helping Christians mine the gap, manage the gap between what they passionately believe about Jesus, but what they actually experience from God. For me, even as a pastor, I was quite chagrined to realize that Jesus promises peace, but I spent so much of my life bound, you know, wrapped up, anxious. And so the book's all about helping us in our faith have a more soul-satisfying relationship with God. If you want to know more about my work, you can go to my website, stevecusswords.com. We'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah, look, when you've got a name like Cuss, you got to have fun with it. So stevecusswords.com is my website and you can click almost any button on that front page to get a, a free access to a video where I actually teach you to notice the four different spaces of reactivity. You know, how do you notice reactivity coming from within you and at you? There's four different spaces. And so you can sign up and grab that uh, video and that PDF if you want to know a bit more about me and my work. Now, I'm sitting at a podcast desk here and you can see there's an empty chair and it's not for Elijah, which is, you know, obviously a tradition in our Hebrew faith. But oftentimes I'll have a co-host and it'll either be my wife, Lisa Cuss, who's a licensed therapist who specializes in trauma and attachment and the parts of self. So my wife, Lisa, will sometimes be sitting here and we'll be talking about what it means to be human and she'll be bringing some of her amazing tools that she's learned as a therapist. Or it might be one of my co-laborers, Jimmy Carnes. Jimmy works full-time in our organization. He also consults. And of course, he's a specialist in all these reactivity tools that I teach, but Jimmy is also our resident Enneagram specialist. And so sometimes when Jimmy's on, we'll be talking about Enneagram and how your deepest desires can both help and hinder your connection to other humans and also to God. About half the time, or maybe a little more than half, I'll actually have a remote guest. And I'm always chasing guests that usually they fall into the category they're an artist or an author, or sometimes I love to interview a leader who's making a profound difference in God's kingdom. Sometimes I'll grab a therapist, psychologist, Oftentimes I'll reach for a theologian or a musician. I'm looking for people in these different streams of culture that can all help us become more human-sized. More often than not, or as often than not, you'll see me interviewing somebody, somebody you may have heard of who's well-known and in the public space, maybe someone that you've never heard of before that I just find really intriguing. And so each week we'll release an episode either with a co-host or with an online guest. When I have an online guest, we'll talk about their field, but I always, with all of my online guests, I turn the tables and I make them endure what we playfully call my gauntlet of anxiety questions. This is the final part of every interview on my show, and it's kind of a, a rapid-fire gauntlet of five or six questions just to help us get inside their brains, get under the surface in their life. You know, sometimes if you ever listen to podcasts where it feels like the guest is always staying on script, like maybe they've written a book and they have like talking points. The gauntlet is specifically designed to dislodge from those talking points 
And so, for example, I'll ask a gauntlet something like, hey, give us one asset and one liability from your family of origin. Who in your life knows that you're not well before you know that you're not well? What's the type of personality that's guaranteed to make you irritable? Stuff like this. And it's rapid fire and kind of fun as much as it's also uh, invasive. Now, the Being Human podcast, it is a new podcast, but I am not new to podcasting. In fact, many of you are listening to this on the same podcast feed that I've been using for five years now. This show used to be called Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, based on my first book. First of all, if you're a new listener, welcome. But of course, welcome back to my trusted community who have been journeying with me on this journey of being human-sized for several years. Another big announcement is we used to just be audio and now we're on video, which gives me the occasion for the first time for some of you to enjoy a, a tradition we tend to do when we have a solo episode or when it's just us in the room, is we just pause each episode just for 30 seconds. We normally do it at the beginning and we light a candle. Because one of the toughest things about reactivity is how it makes us forget God's presence. And I get it. I don't think pastors talk about this enough, but as a pastor, I actually find it hard to follow God because God's invisible. I actually think in some ways, and we'll get into this uh, in April and May, but in some ways, I think it's more challenging to follow Jesus today than it was in Bible times. Because look, let's face it, I'm not saying that the Roman Empire was an easier culture to follow Jesus. I understand the very hostile, violent culture of the Roman Empire versus many of us watching or listening to this in a culture where we are free to worship. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, in the Bible times, Jesus was physically present. He was a tangible human. And today... We're trying to follow an invisible God, and that's harder to do. Also, even in the book of Acts, where Jesus was not visible, Jesus' Holy Spirit sure was tangible, wasn't he? Much more easier to recognize, I think, than today. You know, I, I find in some ways God's still small voice to be a little overrated. So what we do is we tend to light a candle on this show just to remind us that God is as close to us as the light that we see. Sometimes a practice we'll do on the show is we'll just pause and take a intentional breath and just confess the Lordship of Christ through the reality that God is more essential to us than the air in our lungs. Okay, as we wrap up the episode, I just want to give great gratitude to Christianity today. It's a privilege to partner with CT. Thanks to Mike Cosper and Matt and the team there that are helping with this podcast. That's a real treat for me. And let me close today's episode with my all-time favorite quote from G.K. Chesterton. Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person has to do it again until he's nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. Perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It's possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but he's never gotten tired of making them. It may be that God has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, 
and our father is younger than we. See you next week. Being Human is a production of Christianity Today. It's executive produced by Eric Petrick and Mike Cosper. It's produced and edited by Matt Stevens. The associate producers are Mackenzie Hill and Ray Gilliam, with music by Dan Phelps, additional music by one of my very favorite singer-songwriters and friends, Andy Gallahorn, and graphic design by Amy Jones. This episode was brought to you in part by the Enneagram and Marriage Podcast, an outreach dedicated to bringing joy, strength, intimacy, and purpose to couples seeking growth. Be sure to visit enneagramandmarriage.com to find your chemistry together again, or for the very first time.